Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Yeah, thank you so much. And it's so lovely to be in person, be able to talk you through some of this. I won't talk about um, myself, but I will start with just a little bit about the Policy Institute, because you may not know uh, much about us. You may have heard of us, but not know much about what we uh, do. So we have a uh, very clear mission and uh, vision, vision to solve society's challenges with evidence and expertise. And we do that through uh, this sort of tripartite model where we're supposed to be a blend of academic uh, think tank and consultancy type approaches. And the way we kind of characterize that is we try to bring together the rigor of academia with the agility of a consultancy and the connectedness of a think tank. They're the kind of different characteristics we're looking for. And it's quite a unique uh, in, uh, institute and initiative within King. So it's a, it's a great, uh, great institution set up really really well and to have an impact um, and influence on, on things. And, and there's probably there's three underlying principles to why we think we can have an impact. And it's basically summed up in these three terms, that it is uh, inherently co-productive, that one of the great things about coming to a university, uh, my background was more in the commercial sector, but when you come to a university, you can see the incredible power, convening power that universities have of bringing people together in a neutral kind of space. So using that, that space to be co-productive, to actually create both the definition of the problem and then the solutions with other people. Second characteristic it's got is it's interdisciplinary, truly interdisciplinary in terms of research and evaluation. So we try to bring together lots of different skills because you can always get a better answer to any problem if you bring together different um, skill sets. And then the third one's really important, and it's kind of one of the reasons for highlighting this is it's quite a feature of the work that I'm going to talk to you about today is that we prioritise media profile, public engagement and communication as part of the policy influence and impact process. So you've got to uh, actually reach out to people. You've got to create a profile in order to bring people towards you. So we have quite an emphasis on communications as part of our uh, process. So this is the kind of cycle that we work in, these five elements to it, where you convene people together, then you do your research and analysis, then you do solutions generation and testing, and then there's that really important comms-led uh, I- impact and influence stage before you get to evaluation, has it actually worked, and then you go around again in a kind of policy uh, cycle type way. So that's, that's the context, and like I say, the communications bit of it is really, really important, and that's um, a key element of this culture wars in the UK uh, work that we did. Just to give you a quick word about that research, <clears throat> it had five main elements to it. It was quite a big study. A review of the academic literature, um, media content analysis, looking at newspaper content, uh, a UK survey, large-scale UK survey, random probability survey, and then a 30-country survey as well with a smaller number of questions and then some segmentation analysis which I'll talk you through and it's funded by uh, people called Unbound uh, Philanthropy. Anyone heard of those? No? It's like a US based philanthropic um, organisation that do all sorts of different work and it got a huge amount of uh, media coverage and communications about that. More than 60 pieces of national and international um, media coverage for 
uh, this study. There's a lot of interest in it. Um, so uh, I'm going to try and talk. I'm going to talk you through seven points in the time that we've got uh, today in this lecture. The first one is that there's been an absolute explosion in UK media coverage of culture wars as a term in the last uh, in recent years. And we did this through the media content analysis, and we just counted the number of articles mentioning culture wars in UK newspapers. Uh, but we split it into those referencing the UK versus those referencing other countries, which in practice was the US, really. People, the UK media talking about culture wars in the US. If you, if you, the purple line is effectively a US uh, line, more or less, the, the blue line is a UK line. And there's the trend uh, for the US, effectively. Um, and you can see it started off, we weren't really talking about it much in the 1990s. And then each of those little square blocks is a US presidential election year. So when the presidential election years come round, UK starts talking about culture wars a bit more um, in during those years, US-based culture wars. And then in the last few years, uh, there's been a huge increase in referencing culture wars in the US. And you can kind of understand that with President Trump's uh, presidency and the focus on cultural division that that uh, brought. So a big surge, you know, going from like nearly three, up to nearly 300 articles from well under 100 for most of this uh, period. But that, that increase is absolutely dwarfed by the increase in the number of articles referencing culture wars in the UK in blue. Uh, we've got here. We just went through the roof in uh, the last couple of years, last few years. So, in fact, in 2015, there were only 21 articles that talked about a culture war in the UK. Uh, by 2020, there were 534 articles talking about culture wars in the UK. So, we have massively imported this term um, un uncritically in the media. We've just started using it as a shorthand in the media. A couple of points to note that it's just the term culture wars that we're counting here. This doesn't cover all the issues and stories that will be culture wars related um, in the media. And I'll come back to that about how language and uh, uh, concepts uh, evolve in this type of um, issue. And there's a really important point about this, I think, and why we did this element of the study is um, looking at the US uh, literature on this. There's a kind of very live debate about the extent to which culture wars can be created top-down, so from uh, politicians in the media, can they actually create these things, or does it come from bottom-up, as in the significant cultural tensions between the population, different parts of the population, and that creates the conditions for a culture war. Um, and I think the conclusion from all of that really is it's not just top-down. You can't just do it if there's no cultural tension. You can't just create those. But having said that, how the media and politicians talk about the issue is really, really important in setting a tone and setting that sense of um, division between different parts of society. So this is important. The upshot of this is doesn't mean that uh, people have just created this um, culture war phenomenon, uh, but uh, it is important in setting the tone. So that's very useful uh, to have this kind of these kind of measures. There's lots more in the report on um, uh, aspects of how the media talk about it in terms of the issues that people, that the UK media, and this is the main newspapers and news sites that we looked at, how they talk about it, and, and which, who they see as protagonists in the culture war, who actually seems to be fighting um, this culture war. And these are the, this is just the long list of um, the terms, the issues that people said there was, that the UK uh, media says there's a culture war around, so Brexit and the EU, not surprisingly at the top, 
um, of this over this kind of period. This goes back from 1997 to 2020. Uh, but then you've got empire and slavery, race and ethnicity, political views, political culture, free speech, trans rights and gender identity. Uh, and then actually, I mean, like interestingly, for given the series that we're talking about here, religion is not, um, is not trivial in terms of its connection to uh, culture wars in um, UK uh, newspaper media. So you've got 7% of all the articles referencing religion. And that's kind of a theme that you'll see throughout this uh, analysis is that religion is not a top issue in culture wars, but it's, it is contributing to that sense. It's kind of a second-order issue across the piece. And then in terms of the protagonist, perhaps not surprisingly, this is a politically driven uh, phenomenon. Uh, politicians and the political establishment are the people who are mostly talking about this. Um, they, they brought this language in, and we, we felt that very much. We do, we do events at the party conferences each year in the UK, and you could tell in 2018, uh, 2019 in particular, that the, the language had just shifted from polarization and division to being very much then about culture wars. People were starting to talk about culture wars, and that kind of reflects this political establishment. And then you get the general public, uh, the media themselves, um, and religious uh, figures and institutions are down there. It's less, less about religious figures leading these types of culture war debates, but they uh, are involved in, in terms of um, the issues. So the second point I want to make in this is while we've imported the language of culture wars into our media and political discussions, we haven't really defined it very well in the UK. It's used very loosely um, in terms of what does it actually mean? What is a culture war? Uh, whereas the US literature is much more precise in terms of defining it. So a culture war signals much more than disagreement between people. Political disagreement happens all the time, and cultural disagreement happens all the time. It's kind of natural and healthy to have that, but that's not what culture war is when you look at the literature. And the guy who wrote uh, the book that gave us the term, more or less, or popularised the term at least, James Davison Hunter, he wrote a book in 1991 called Culture Wars. Um, he talks about it as a sense of conflict between two irreconcilable views of what is fundamentally right and wrong about the world we live in. This is not just disagreement or difference of opinion, is seeing the world entirely differently and thinking your version is right and other people's version is uh, wrong. And that's uh, a, a really important element to it. It's a really important distinction when, if, you, if you're trying to understand culture wars generally. That's been developed as a concept over the years. <clears throat> uh, Lydiana Mason, another US professor, we did an event with her and colleagues um, uh, just before Christmas, and she's done a lot of the work that uh, has developed some of these types of thinking. And what she identified and others identified was um, how this gets formed into mega-identities. Uh, because what happens, and particularly in the US, is you start to get, you get one or two issues that people divide around. Say in the US, historically it could have been around abortion or uh, other aspects. But then you roll in other issues into that. Uh, identity. It becomes, it's, it's, a, it's a process in polarization literature called conflict extension, where one issue gets rolled into another issue, gets rolled into another issue. And the more that gets rolled into those um, identities, the more that your uh, identity is tied up with your views on abortion, but then also race and then also religion and all these other things, uh, it makes it much easier to start to think of the outgroup partisans as quite different from it. If it covers more of life, then you think more that they've got a completely different view of uh, what the world is like, which makes it easier to dehumanize them, according to uh, Liliana Mason. If you think you're wrong or very different views on just one subject, that's one thing. But if you think 
this other group has got a completely different view of the world on lots of subjects, then you think about them with less generosity. It becomes more important uh, to your identity. And then the, the, a later uh, bit of analysis by Ezra Klein in his book, Why We're Polarised, again, focused on the US, is uh, he makes the important point that when you activate one identity, you often activate all of them. So if you've got this conflict extension thing going on where there's loads of issues rolled into someone's identity and you activate one of those identities, say on one particular issue like Brexit, um, you're also activating all of them. You start to create this sense of this is really tied up with my identity. And he makes the point that once every time they're activated, they're strengthened. So every time you start to try and divide people on uh, one of these issues, it brings them closer to their in-group and makes them further away from their out-group. So you've got this kind of mechanism where it becomes quite self-fulfilling. Uh, one issue leads to many issues, and that leads to a, strength, a strong identity across lots of issues. But every time, more and more issues start to activate these cultural uh, divisions and identities. Right, so that's one view of it. There, is, there, are people, there are US academics who detract from that a bit. Morris Fiorina, for example, another US professor, he is quite skeptical that culture wars are actually really even happening in, in the US, and he thinks they're a bit talked up. So he says, reports of a culture war in the US are mostly wishful thinking and useful fundraising strategies on the part of culture war guerrillas, is his kind of view. Uh, abetted by a media driven by the need to make the dull and everyday appear exciting and unprecedented. So there is, there is an element of truth in this, is that it becomes um, uh, it's a useful tactic in politics to emphasize division if you're fundraising. And it's a useful tactic in media emphasize division because we like conflict. We click on uh, conflict uh, stories that are about conflict and um, highly emotional stories. And looking at the evidence about this is from the survey data uh, now from the UK. There is some kind of uh, evidence of people thinking that this is more of a media tactic. So 77% of the UK public agree that the media often makes our country feel more divided um, than it really is. 44% uh, so fewer, but still a big chunk of the population, agree that politicians invent or exaggerate uh, culture wars as a political tactic. So we have got this sense that this is partly political tactics, not a deep cultural division. But, I mean, counter to that, though, counter to Fiorina's view, is that only 12% of people agree that culture wars only exist in the media and on social media, not in real life. So I think we can be uh, too blasé uh, about the extent to which this is real, and important to the general public. They do see cultural division as an important aspect of their life, and they are, and a lot of them are uh, still worried about it. And you can see that in these types of questions, um, how, how people see the key fault lines. So we asked people about a whole range of issues. How much tension, if any, would you say there are between the following groups um, in the UK uh, today? And I won't go through it in detail, but it, you can see there's an awful lot of red in this slide, particularly at the top, a lot, a lot of people saying there's a great deal or a fair amount of tension between leavers and remainers, uh, rich and poor. We added this question about metropolitan elite versus ordinary working uh, people as a bit of a test because it's metropolitan elite has become one of those touchstone terms that some of the media use about to try to create that sense of division between one and the other. And the public kind of buy that uh, a little bit. Immigrants and people born in the UK, different parties going down the list, socially liberal versus traditional, different ethnicities, different social classes, which is there's a whole section in the report on social class-based divisions, because that hasn't gone away for people. That's still important in um, the UK context. But then you get down to different religions. So again, that same sort of pattern of um, non-trivial 
sense of division between religions, but not quite a top order things. And then we've got much less sense of division between old and young, uh, between cities, that, urban, that, that cities versus the rest split, which is quite po popular in politics, is less, lands less with uh, the public. And then the interesting one, you know, from our perspective and some of the work I'll talk to you about later, between those with a university education and those without a university education, not really a key dividing line uh, seen by, from the public's perspective. Again, politicians, some politicians, much keener to make this about uh, education. And then men and women, uh, very much less. But the third point I wanted to make is that while people see the tension, people see that there is cultural tension in that kind of bottom-up way, that there are divisions within society, uh, they're not paying nearly as much attention to the culture wars as we might think, given that um, media coverage and uh, the commentary are very focused on culture wars as a, as a thing. So we ask people completely open-ended, what sort of things do you think of when we say culture wars? Um, what do you think came top? Just shout out, if you like. Any guesses? What comes top of the top culture war? Thing that comes to mind when people think about culture wars? Anyone? Sorry? Brexit. Brexit, yeah, good guess. Yeah, that was at top of the list. Immigration. Immigration, another good list. Yeah, very interconnected, those two things. Um, you would expect them to come up high. Decolonization, yeah, that's an interesting one, actually. You can come to that in, in a second. No, I mean, there are really good guesses and really um, uh, what, what, I, what I would guess as well, uh, frankly. But the actual thing that comes top is none or nothing. So there is like uh, no sense of what does this mean for 44, 43% of the uh, population. Then you do get into the types of things that you were talking about, um, race, um, immigration, uh, 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 integration, multiculturalism, uh, and religion also in there. So these are the kind of big ticket things people think about in terms of cultural uh, division. Um, but again, small proportions. People don't have a clear image of what this thing is or what it's about. And then you go down the list. This is the bottom end of the list. This is the very bottom of the list because this was open-ended, so we were coding it into lots of different categories. And you go down there, and all the things um, that the media are very focused on, the public are not at all connecting to a culture wars type thing, not many of the public. Black Lives Matter, trans and gender identity issues, statues, 0.7%. Uh, last night, the proms, this was done uh, a year and a bit ago, so it was sort of just as that was still in the news. COVID, again, people seeing this as very culture war-driven issue, and it's not to say that there aren't important COVID divisions in cultural sense. And then right at the bottom is no platforming in universities, which is, you know, very current policy debate right now with lots of legislation going through around this, but not at all really registering with the public as a thing that uh, is indicative of the cultural uh, division. So it's really worth bearing in mind that people are not noticing as much as you think on this. They've got, they've got busy lives, getting on with their lives. They're not really thinking about this. And woke means utterly different things to different people. Woke, we're doing more work on woke, um, but this was from, a, uh, from last year. So if, you just, if someone described you as yoke, uh, woke, would you consider it a compliment or an insult? Could we do a show of hands, actually? I, have to just, I haven't thought of this, but I'd be interested to see. What would you th if you heard woke, who would think it was a compliment? That's like, I don't know what that is. Hands a little higher, can't quite see. About a third, maybe? Third, and insult? 
about a third as well. So you're perfectly in tune with uh, the, the public who are, are like uh, a quarter saying compliment, quarter saying an insult, and then the rest in the middle just not knowing what the hell you're talking about still because it is a, another, it's another one of these very emergent terms. Um, uh, but that varies quite significantly across um, the population, uh, including by age, actually. Uh, so the biggest, biggest divide, and a lot of these other divides can be explained by the age profile on this, the Leave Remain Labour Conservative will reflect the age profile of people who think it's a compliment. So younger people more likely to think it's a compliment, but still quite a lot of them thinking it's an insult, one in five um, thinking it's an insult. And then really, when you get to 55 years plus, you just don't know what it means at all, mostly. It's kind of um, still still a very new term for them. We're actually updating this in, the late, uh, in a new survey, and I expect it will have moved, because you can see the narrative has changed in the media. Woke has definitely become more of an insult a more pejorative term um, in how the media are using uh, woke in terms of the war on woke, etc., etc. Um, so, but the fourth point I wanted to make, sort of in that context of quite a variety of views and people not having a very strong opinion on lots of these types of things, is we don't have two tribes in Britain uh, or the UK as yet. You've got this kind of narrative from the US that you've got Democrats versus Republicans and it's two moving mountains, they, they call it in some of the analysis, where they've just drifted apart, Democrats and Republicans, and they face off against each other, this very bipolar view of how society is. And we don't have anything like that, really, in the UK. It's arguable whether you have it in the US as well, but we certainly don't have it in the UK. We do have a spectrum where you've got traditionalists at one end progressives of the other. This is from a latent class analysis that we did on the big survey in the UK. And traditionalists, as you'd expect, are the oldest and most heavily male group. Um, they're most nostalgic for the country's past and proud of British Empire, things like that. They've got those types of feelings, and they're about 26%. Then at the other end of the spectrum, we've got progressives, youngest group, highest education level, most likely to think women's rights, ethnic minority rights, trans rights have not gone far enough. Um, so this is the, these are the debates that we tend to hear most about, the either end of the spectrum, traditionalist versus progressive uh, spectrum. But that's only half the population. There is another half of the population split into the disengaged. So one in five people just don't care or just don't know about any of these types of issues, and they'll just say, don't know. They've got neutrality on politics and Brexit, um, least like to think, take any sort of stance on culture wars. And then the most interesting group is also the largest group, because that's the kind of moderates, who are a real uh, nuanced bunch with different types of views depending on the issue. So they support greater rights for women and ethnic minorities, but they also agree political correctness has gone too far, and there's too much policing of our speech, but they're also not nostalgic for our past generally or proud of the empire, uh, that, the British uh, empire. So they haven't got that sense of connection to the past, but they do have worries about our speech uh, and how policed um, that is. So. We hear mostly about not just traditionalist versus, not even traditionalist versus progressives, but just even little, little tiny slithers of those traditionalist and, and progressive groups are the ones that make a huge amount of noise on social media and the media. And it feels like you've got one side battling against another of quite um, extreme views in either direction. And that's not the case. We hear mostly from the noisy extremes, but there's much more nuance in public opinion um, than you get from that. People are not as wedded or as opposed on these types of things. I'll just give you a couple of examples of how sort of more nuanced and complex this, this um, position is. Uh, so the moderate group, that big 32% uh, 
uh, group are close to progressives on the rights for mar marginalized groups. They're closer to thinking we have to go further. So when you look at um, this sort of question, when it comes to giving black, Asian, and minority ethnic people equal rights with white people, things have gone far enough in the UK. Uh, no, hardly any progressives agree with that. Uh, they nearly all disagree with that. But the moderates also disagree with that. They don't think things have gone far enough. Uh, as opposed to, say, the traditionalists, where you've got seven and ten of them thinking that it's gone far enough, these equal rights things have gone, gone far enough and we don't need any more uh, on this. But then, moderates and progressives together on this. So there is a kind of uh, latent majority within uh, the UK who think we actually need to still do more to progress uh, uh, people's uh, rights. But when you look at political correctness, and particularly political correctness has gone too far, that sense that political uh, correctness has gone too far, progressives are really out on their own on this. Um, so 61% of progressives uh, disagree with that, but it's basically just them disagreeing that political correctness has gone too far. Just about every single traditionalist agrees that political correctness has gone too far, but so do quite a bit of disengaged and moderates. So you've got a different sort of coalition there uh, on this type of question of policing our speech. And it is, policing our speech is a really key fault line um, that's fragments in the UK. And we, we saw this in the international surveys where we were top of the list of countries that were thought that political correctness has gone too far and that we're doing too much on, um, uh, too, that people are too easily offended, degree that people are too easily offended. You can see that here, but I mean, like this is a, this is a eight point scale. Um, uh, and you can see that it's really fragmented. You've got people spread all over this eight-point scale. We don't have a very consistent view on that. But if we did, you know, we do lean more towards people are too easily offended. You've got 55% of people in that um, group thinking people are too uh, easily offended. Um, but when you break that down by the different uh, subgroups, particularly age and uh, uh, education uh, level, it's not quite the picture that you get portrayed in the media of this being um, a whole load of university students, basically, and young people in general who think we should be more politically correct versus an older group who think we uh, are, are too easily offended. Um, it's not the case. There is actually, when you look at this, it's 48% of 16 to 24-year-olds who think that people are too easily offended. Um, and there are 43% of people with degree levels or above who still also think people are too easily offended. So that kind of simplistic description of young versus old on these types of things is just uh, wrong. It doesn't really capture the reality of it. And that sort of leads on to uh, point five, which is, it also gives me a chance to plug my book, which is on generations, uh, generational uh, stereotypes. Because I think, I mean, one of the key dynamics here is this, this phony sense of generational, phony generational stereotypes of fueling this uh, phony cultural war, uh, cu cultural division between old and young. So the book's called Generations Does When You're Born um, Shape Who You Are. And, and really, the theme of the book is analytically, it's that we're mixing up different types of effects when we talk about old versus young, particularly on cultural things. There's only three types of effect that explain all change in societies. Um, you can kind of group them into these three types, period, life cycle, and cohort effects. And period effects are where something happens, the whole of society is affected to some degree at least. So you think of a 
financial crisis, or now particularly think of a pandemic, that's a kind of classic period effect. Something happens and we're all influenced. It may have different effects on people, depending on their age or other circumstances, but we're all affected. But you also have powerful life cycle effects where actually get people get pulled along particular currents during their life when they leave home, get a job, get married, have kids, retire, all of those types of things. That kind of life cycle effect is real too. We do change as we age in different sorts of ways. It can be called age effects in the statistical literature. This is based on a model called APC, which is age period cohort effect. So it's a statistical technique, but I don't I use a much simpler way to think about this in, in the book rather than quite complicated stats of it. And then finally, you've got um, cohort effects, which are generational effects, where one generation is different from another generation and stays different from that generation over time. Uh, and that, that they happen, they're really important generational cohort effects, because lots of great literature showing that uh, what's happening when we're young, in our teens and uh, early 20s, like lots of you, is really a formative experience for our lives. What happens then stays with us more. So what's going on in the society or the economy at that point has a more shaping effect on you for your life uh, going forward. And can, you can see all sorts of things that shapes people's lives, uh, particularly economic ones for millennials and Gen Z. Uh, having tougher economic circumstances has put them on a different life course in lots of Western uh, countries. So uh, you've got these three types of effects, and it kind of mix, we mix them up in a lot of our analysis. Quite often, what we're actually talking about is a life cycle effect, that young people are different from old people. And that's the case throughout history. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a new or unusual thing, and it's not a cohort effect. It doesn't mean that those young people are going to change, aren't going to change when they, as they get older. So just give you one example around culture wars. So culture wars is not down to a new generation of snowflakes. Uh, or social justice warriors. That would be my assertion from uh, the book. We have to be mindful of this, is that the evidence does show that there's clear gaps between young and old on attitudes to race, immigration, gender equality, identity, sexuality, etc. loads of cultural issues and, and religion. Um, there's an evidence of a gap between young and old on those types of things. But the crucial point is they're not unusual gaps um, between young and old. This is not a cohort effect. This is much more of an age effect. In fact, in many ways, there was bigger gaps between baby boomers and their parents than there are between young people and older people today. The issues have changed. The issues always change within society. The, the ones that are more emergent in terms of social change, they're the ones that the gaps are on now, where there's less, less of a gap on, say, what's women's role, whether they should be working or not working. That's an old issue. So there's not so much gaps there. So the, the issues change, but the gaps are not that large. Looking at my data going back to the 1960s or 70s, mm -hmm. uh, when baby boomers uh, were the young people of um, that sort of day. So there's not these big gaps. What the evidence shows is there's not these big gaps, but it feels very fractious between young and old on cultural issues, as we've seen. Um, uh, and I think there's two effects going on here. I mean, the, f the first one is a constant of history, which is that we always think today's young are uniquely wrong or weird. Um, re regardless of what time in history you go to, you always think today's young people are the worst ever. And you can kind of see that repeated throughout history. So you go back to Socrates, uh, who had a massively long diatribe against the young people of his day. And this, you know, part of that was their children now love luxury, they have bad manners. They show disrespect for their elders, which could be said today, but that was in 400 BC. You go to 
1771, a letter to the Town and Country magazine called the young people of that day a race of effeminate, self-admiring, emaciated fribbles was the saying there, which is uh, more or less a dis uh, definition of snowflakes just 250 years ago. So we had the same sort of ac accusations put to young people uh, back then. It feels worse now. This is the second point. I think it feels worse now because it's mixed with a period effect of more fractious politics, media, and social media. So we've actually got uh, a period effect. This is, I would say, the, the sense of division on cultural things between young and old today is a period effect, not a cohort effect, going back to that kind of division. It's much more to do with that, uh, to do with we've got a social media and a media that emphasizes division. We've got uh, young and old on different platforms in lots and lots of different ways. And we've also got this shift in a politics of a focus on culture change. We've moved from a focus on economic issues to much more focus on culture change. And as soon as you put culture at the heart of your politics, you're building in a division between young and old, because young are much more comfortable with culture change. They've not been brought up in an older traditions uh, and not got used to that. Um, and they have that sense of uh, change is, is positive. And you can see the focus on culture change in our politics from a this is quoted from an EC report on values in politics, but the orange, the orange line is cultural focus in 21 Western democracies' political manifestos. So they, they analyze the content of political manifestos all the way back to 1950s. And you can see that change, that switch from it used to be uh, the manifestos were mostly focused on the economy, not really talking so much about culture uh, and cultural issues. Um, uh, like immigration um, or like uh, uh, religion or other types of, of culture. But now it's overtaken. We've got more manifesto content in the last couple of decades focused on culture um, when it was the other way around in the 60s and uh, early 70s. So we've got this shift. We've got this shift to focus on um, culture in the last few years. We can see that increasingly in a UK context, particularly 20, since 2015, since we've kind of had the run-up and aftermath of Brexit. So if you split um, uh, party support for the two main parties in the UK by these generations, for the book, I just use the five generations that people are most used to seeing, analyze pre-war generation, baby boomer generation, Gen X, which is my generation, millennials, and Gen Z. So you've got to kind of, that's the age age order of those different groups, and you just track them uh, over time. What I do in the book is a lot of this, um, tracking these groups, not by their age, but by when they were born, to see, um, see how, whether they stay constant within um, their generation. You can see conservative party support in the UK has always had a big age basis to it. There's always been a divide where older people, the pre-war generation, more likely to uh, support the Conservatives than younger generations, but it's widened over the last few years. You've got quite you've got the widest gap between old and young on Conservative Party support that we've had. But it's actually the Labour Party where we've seen um, the new pattern. Uh, this is the Labour Party support by those generations again, and so it's remarkably consistent across different generations. It's gone up and down over time. They've got better or, or and then worse in terms of uh, their appeal across the population. Uh, but incredibly close together. It wasn't really an age-based vote, which is weird when you think about it now, because it feels uh, this has this exploded since then, the age range within uh, the Labour Party's board. And that's starting to feel quite normal. But you've got to remember that it's very abnormal for Labour Party to have such an age-based 
uh, younger person-based vote and an age-divided vote. This is a new, this is a new pattern. And I would argue, I do argue in the book, that it's, it's, it's risky to split politics on age for all sorts of reasons. One of them is um, the Labour Party, for example, will think that it's got demography on their side, that the, uh, older, the older Conservatives are dying out, being replaced by these uh, younger Labour-supporting voters, so they just have to wait for this demographic advantage to play out over time. And it, it sort of brings them towards the leading edge of culture change as well, because they can see the nature of their vote, so they get much more comfortable with uh, promoting leading edge cultural issues. That encourages the other side, say in this case the Conservatives, to think they've got demography working against them. So they, they've got a really strong incentive to emphasize the risk and radicalism of the other side uh, in order to bring their base close to them, their shrinking base. If they don't think they can appeal across this, this age divide, they've got to really work their base quite hard. Uh, and that includes demonizing um, the other side. So you get this sense of polarization based on age, which is quite risky because people are making these political calculations. And there's lots of other reasons why age-based uh, politics is not that great, which we may come back to. Um, but it's not going to go away. I mean, this cultural focus in the UK in terms of the media content and then political content is not going to go away in the short term. Um, and we're on the end of those long-term trends of political manifestos moving in that direction in any case. And it's not going to go away for all sorts of reasons, but, but one of them is this. This is from UK in a Change in Europe um, work, which uh, plots Conservative, MP, Conservative and Labour MPs. I'll show you Labour in a second. And then those other blue blobs are activists of different sorts, members of the Conservative Party in different sorts of ways are activists. And then you've got Conservative voters at the bottom on a scale of liberal to authoritarian social values. So you've got um, all voters are actually pretty close to all voters is the whole electorate, that grey blob at the bottom. So they're not that far from Conservative voters, and they're pretty in line with the Conservative Party's view. So the general public has that more authoritarian sense of social values uh, than liberal sense of social values. When you compare that with Labour, uh, you can see Labour MPs, Labour candidates uh, and councillors, members, uh, and members who campaign are all way over this way into the liberal um, liberal values, uh, liberal social values, compared to both their own voting, uh, their own Labour supporters, but also voters, all voters as a whole. So you can see why um, Conservative, uh, the government's uh, approach to this would be absolutely, let's keep emphasising cultural um, differences or cultural debates, because actually we're in tune, much more in tune with the public, the electorate, overall. So you're going to see that continue to that continued focus within uh, the UK politics. And just a final seventh point is just to recognise that this is not just a UK or a US um, issue. As I say, we did this circa around 30 country study uh, across um, uh, the world, different types of uh, countries. Uh, we just asked people from what you see, the same sort of questions that we had in the, in the UK, what you see in the news media and online, uh, to what extent do you agree or disagree that your country is divided by uh, culture wars? Just asking people about the term, not particularly going into the definitions with them. You can see this, there's quite a lot of countries with a strong sense of culture wars in their own country. South Africa, India, the US um, is right up there, and Brazil, and actually, you know, you're all the way down the list. Britain is not actually that high 
on this list of sense of cultural uh, division. The term culture wars is definitely being imported into Europe via the UK in many ways. I do an awful lot of media interviews with uh, European journalists who are asking about the UK experience because they think that may be their future in terms of these types of divisions. But in terms of the public, that sense of cultural division is really quite uh, widespread across um, most countries. And then when you look at the sources of tension across the world, that same question we asked in the UK about the sources of tension, uh, sources of tension without Brexit in there, obviously, but the same sorts of things come up near the top of the list. Rich and poor, political parties, social classes, immigrants, uh, liberal versus uh, traditional sorts of views, different ethnicities. Metropolitan elite even works as a kind of concept um, that people see tension around. Uh, and then you've got um, different religions. So again, same sort of pattern globally as in the UK, where it's not right at the top, but religious tension uh, is seen as an issue in um, the majority, by the majority of people across all these different countries. So it is important. I'll just show you one other final slide on UK versus US uh, compared to the global, because there's, there's, there's a lot going on in this chart, but there's a few things to look at first. The first thing I'd look at is um, the US figures in light blue. You can see the sense of tension in the US across some of these different uh, factors, particularly the gap on parties, that sense of party division, 90%, 9 and 10 of US people saying that, that there, there is uh, a great deal of a fair amount of tension between people who support to live different parties. But all of those top issues, you see the blue, the light blue bar is out in uh, the lead compared to the global average. And then finally on the UK, you get a sense of what's why, where we stand out slightly from the average, um, which is immigra immigration, as you'd expect. We're above the global average and say that there's uh, tension there. Ethnicities as well, different ethnicities in the UK, that is seen. And then actually also slightly on religion, which was interesting to me. When you consider all those different countries that we've got in there, we're above the global average in terms of uh, tension between um, religion. So that's it in terms of um, data. There's a couple of just reflections I wanted to make before. We, we may have time for questions, I guess. Um, is uh, the first reflection was we thought long and hard about whether to do this study on culture wars um, to start with, because there is something I, I, slightly ironic that you might have spotted that I kind of started off saying we got 60 pieces of media coverage for our study. Then I showed you a chart of how culture war um, discussion in the media is taking off. So we're slightly part of the problem here, um, which is one of the things you've got to be really mindful of when you're doing this type of research is we're kind of adding to that narrative of culture wars is a big issue because we're doing serious big research projects on it and you have no control over how that, how that data is then used in the media. So this was uh, part of the release. This was a, a newspaper article in The Sun and the Scottish Sun uh, newspaper that was based on one of our releases. Releases It said that the woke brigade could tear the UK apart despite just being a noisy minority. And that was not what we said at all. That would, we had to actually uh, talk to the Sun about how they misrepresented that. But there is no real control uh, once it's out there. So it's an it's a interesting issue to um, research. But I suppose, I think our perspective on it is, is it's incredibly difficult to engage well on culture wars uh, in universities and in general. But it's also impossible to ignore. It would be the wrong decision not to research it, we think, as sensitive as you can. It's just going to keep coming back 
um, just going to keep coming back unless, uh, unless we, uh, whether we analyse it or not. And it's too important an issue for the nation and universities um, not to have an evidence-based engagement with. Um, and that was our focus for this. So our current research is uh, a new study on the tensions between freedom of speech and freedom from harm. This is one of the key uh, tensions in the policy uh, environment right now, where we have a, a freedom of speech bill, and we also have an online safety bill, and those two things are a little bit in tension between what you can say and what you can't, and there's a big gray area of what is the difference between harm and offense, and there's uh, all sorts of interesting areas there. So we're just doing a new study on where the public are on those types of things. Uh, we're also we're doing an internal project with King's on can we develop methods to reduce the chilling effect. Um, chilling effect is this term that's come out of this culture wars and freedom of expression work is where people don't feel able to express their views because they feel like they're going to be judged or cancelled in some senses. And I think that from our other work uh, on freedom of expression, that is an important dynamic uh, there, the extent to which people... Uh, at least understanding the extent of a chilling effect and whether there are practical interventions you can make to make people feel more comfortable expressing views that could be controversial, particularly in a university environment, because that's, you know, rigorous debate is what we're supposed to be uh, about. And then finally, um, we're looking at the role of deliberative de democracies in bridging divides. We've just got a, a new study on looking, can you use deliberative approaches, things like citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, those types of things, if you get people together to have those high-quality discussions, can you reduce this uh, sense of um, tension? So, lots more interesting things to uh, look at. This is not. This is very much an opening for our research on uh, culture wars. This is just the start of a program, um, and really interesting. Your views uh, and thoughts on how to take it forward, and the full resources. Some of the full resources are there for you to pick up. I think that is it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.